Hello, and welcome to Theories of Change, a podcast about climate change and the various strategies and approaches to addressing this global challenge. I'm your host, Sarah Ladislaw. Twice a month, we'll talk with experts about how to affect the kind of change needed to bring about a more manageable climate for future generations. We'll talk with people from all walks of life who sometimes approach climate change from very different angles. Grand strategy is not something that is found in the world that just exists and everyone realizes and agrees that this is the strategy. I think it is something that is won through argument and through building consensus over time. On this episode, we speak with Ganesh Sitaraman, professor of law and director of program in law and government at Vanderbilt Law School. Ganesh teaches and writes about constitutional law, the regulatory state, economic policy, democracy, and foreign affairs. Professor Sitaraman has been a longtime advisor to Elizabeth Warren, including serving as a senior advisor on her 2020 presidential campaign, her senior counsel in the Senate, and her policy director during her 2012 Senate campaign. He's also senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and the co-founder of the Great Democracy Initiative, which helps build bold, innovative, and detailed policy plans. On today's episode of Theories of Change, we talk about Ganesh's views that climate change is one of the reasons why the United States needs to institute a grand strategy of resilience. We discuss how this resilience strategy requires a new approach to thinking about our democracy, our economy, and how we organize the government. Ganesh reflects on the importance of utilizing a crisis to enact deep change to our system of governance and what a strategy of resilience means for our relationship with other countries. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Ganesh, thanks for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. You've got this really interesting background, having worked in the Senate and also being a law school professor that thinks about a broad range of issues from democracy to the economy to foreign affairs. Could you just give us a little bit of your background so listeners will know where you're coming from? Sure, thanks. Yeah, as as you mentioned, I'm a law professor. I teach at Vanderbilt Law School, and I teach constitutional law, legislation, regulation, foreign affairs law. And in politics and policy, I think I've had the good fortune of being one of these people who's been able to cover a lot of different topics And what that's meant is I think a lot of what I try to do is see the interconnections between things. I've done a lot of foreign policy, a lot of economic policy. And then as a law professor, you really have to think about how to drill down and make policies real into actual laws that could be passed into regulations, how those things will be interpreted by courts. So there's a technical element of it, too, in terms of real implementation. So what's interesting, I think, is that cover a lot of things. And some of that, I think, will be part of what we're going to talk about today. One of the reasons I had reached out is you wrote a piece called A Grand Strategy for Resilience that recently featured in Foreign Affairs Journal. And it put forward this idea that, you know, the United States needs to take a fundamentally different approach to its strategy. Now, grand strategy, as you notice in the piece, is always sort of a big topic that you have to sort of take on with a little bit of trepidation and humility, right? Because grand strategy is hard to execute, particularly in complicated times. But one of the things we thought was interesting is that you talked about this grand strategy being, you know, foundationally related to this idea of resilience. Can you talk about why you came to that conclusion, particularly for the U.S. approach to many of the kinds of issues that we're dealing with today? 
Yeah, so I think there's really two parts to it. One, why try to stake out something on grand strategy right now? And, you know, I think it was the issue before the one this article's in, in foreign affairs, but it may have been two before. There was actually a whole article about how grand strategy is now impossible and how we shouldn't even try to do grand strategy because we're too polarized. The world is too complicated. It's impossible to have anything coherent. And I think that actually misses a few things that are really important about grand strategy. And the first is that, Grand strategy is not something that is found in the world that just exists and everyone realizes and agrees that this is the strategy. I think it is something that is won through argument and through building consensus over time. It's easy to identify looking back. It's hard to know at any given moment, you know, when you're building it, what it, that it's actually going to be a thing. You can try to articulate it, but it's not obvious that the day after, you know, Kennan, you know, pens his great tomes on this stuff that the, immediately everyone says, says, obviously, we should do the, you know, a containment grand strategy for the next 40 years. And that's the plan. It's a process. It's something that's going to get worked out. And part of my hope was that this piece would really be a contribution to that debate and a discussion. And I think that it's one that's urgently needed right now, because we're at this real inflection point in our history, where so many things are coming together to get people thinking actually the way we've been doing things for the last generation or so is no longer going to cut it and we got to do something different. And there are moments like this that happen in American history. You know, we really had one kind of approach to the world and to our domestic policy from the 1940s through the 1970s. We could call it liberal in some general sense. You know, and even Nixon said, I'm a Keynesian in economics. There's a level of consensus and then we went through a different era. It was the Reagan era. It was neoliberalism. And even Bill Clinton said the era of big government was over, right? So we go through these periods where there's a, a big shift that happens, whether it's in the 40s or 1980. And I think we're sort of in one of those moments now where people are seeing we're going to need some big changes right now. And we can't just do things the way that they've been done in the last couple of decades going forward. So I think that's the case for grand strategy. And not to filibuster here, but I think the part about resilience is that I think when you look at a lot of the challenges that we face, whether it's the pandemic that we're in the middle of right now, the economic situation, both from the pandemic, but really pre-existing that with extreme century high levels of inequality and severe differences in economic opportunity and economic security to climate change and the shocks that are going to come from that and extreme weather events to the possibility of cyber attacks and electronic warfare to rising economic competition with China, especially all of these are things that while they seem extremely different are actually really similar in the sense that a country that is more resilient, that is able to endure, to bounce back, and that is strong at home in a number of different ways, is actually going to be better able to weather any of these challenges and to prevent them from happening in the first place too, prevent the worst effects of those things from happening in the first place. So that to me struck me as a really interesting thing that the complexity of our moment actually you know, there's something that's united in terms of the policy approach that we might take to addressing all of these challenges. 
One of the things that I thought was interesting in how you described that is that it grand strategy of resilience is not so much about winning any battles. It's about being resilient to them, right? Which I guess is in the title, but it's really about being able to deal with problems that aren't going to fundamentally go away for a while, but you're going to have to be able to deal with them and bounce back. And that seems to be the unifying theme that you see in those big challenges. So we focus in this podcast on the issue of climate change, which quite frankly, nine times out of 10, seems like a big enough problem just to be dealt with on its own. But you've kind of packaged it in this broader theme of resilience. I'm just wondering from that vantage point, how do you think the resilience point helps guide policymakers who are thinking about doing something on climate change, reframe the issue in a bit of a different way? I think one of the ways that we can see the direct applicability of resilience issues is, you know, I think in the pandemic context, a lot of people are talking about things like, do we have supply chains that are secure in the case that we have another pandemic coming down? You know, there's not enough PPE or ventilators or drugs or a vaccine. And I think what's really interesting is that as people's minds sort of learn those kind of vocabulary, supply chain resilience and vulnerability and stockpiles at home, a lot of that is actually transportable into the climate context. And so if you think about the fires out west or a major hurricane hitting a big city, a lot of similar questions come up. Do we have the kind of medical equipment that we need? What kinds of productive work that are in those areas will no longer be available? And will that disrupt goods or services that are provided more broadly? A lot of these things are common. And I think seeing that connection for policymakers, my hope is that it'll translate to understanding that there's actually a systemic kind of set of topics that we should be thinking about that have these multiple uses. And climate is a big one of those. And what that means is that you don't necessarily have to be obsessed with climate as your main focus or priority to want to do things that are also actually going to be really important for addressing climate. So if you're a policymaker and the biggest thing you're worried about is economic competition with China and you're less worried about climate change, actually it turns out a wide variety of things about supply chains and production of, say, in this case, clean energy or other things might overlap in a lot of places. And that could be beneficial Once you start thinking in resilience terms, you see that it can apply to lots of things and there's really more commonality. So my hope is that it could even unite some policymakers who have disparate goals, but the solutions actually are relatively similar. I want to draw that out a little bit more because I think when you, you know, you talk about this suite of issues, whether it's cybersecurity to climate change, and we've had people on the podcast who've literally written books about climate resilience and like all the very specific policy interventions and things you might do to build a more resilient economy to the coming impacts of global climate change. But you in your article actually go back to democracy and, you know, the foundations of our economic system. And one of your lines of reasoning is that we're just fundamentally not prepared to be resilient because those two things are not working correctly. Could you talk a little bit more about why that broad framing and thinking about the foundations of democracy and the economy might help us build a more resilient outcome, not just for climate, but across the board for some of these challenges that you're talking about? It's a really great question. And the lines of of logical connection between these different things are a little bit complicated, not because they're difficult, but because there's multiple steps involved. But the starting point is that one of the key things for having a stable 
and effective and working democracy, working government, working society is that you actually can't have too much inequality. You can't have too big of a difference between how people see each other, so kind of fracturing of the social community. And you have to have a government that is actually responsive to the people, all three of these things. So equality, political responsiveness, and social solidarity. And the absence of these things creates problems because it means that people can be inflamed in and divided against each other, which can make things harder to accomplish in a political sense. It means that some people on the, let's take economic inequality, will be severely vulnerable to certain kinds of shocks and things that happen, while others will be pretty much completely insulated. And that creates problems for society that can also be exploited politically. And then the equality points, I mean, you know, we think about this, I think everyone thinks about this a lot in the context of racial justice, to the extent people are divided and systematically oppressed It also creates fracturing that's both political and economic and social, and that can be exploited by adversaries or by people even within the country to destabilize situations. All of those things make a society less resilient, make a society weaker. It means that when there's a pandemic, there's going to be a whole bunch of people who are not going to have access to healthcare if you don't have an economic system and a social infrastructure that enables that. Well, that means more people die. That means more people in certain communities are going to have worse health outcomes. It's going to lead to economic problems. It's going to lead to social fracturing. All of those things are problems that everyone is going to have to bear. And so a key part, I think, about resilience is thinking about what makes for a resilient economy more broadly. And part of that is a resilient economy has to be more equal than our economy is now. And our democracy for it to be resilient also has to be more equal. And so when I talk about the resilience of our democracy, it's not just election security from foreign interference, which is obviously a huge part and an important thing that we need to be working on. It's also the ability of government to actually be responsive to people, the ability for people to actually vote, the people knowing that their voice is being heard. And in fact, what political science research shows is that that is not the case in the United States now. Um, Battery of studies show that the political system is responsive to the wealthiest people and to corporations and not to ordinary Americans. And what that means is that you get polling that, you know, we've all seen now that show that young people, you know, in increasing numbers don't necessarily think it's important to live in a democracy. And that kind of thing is problematic across the board. So if we want to save our democracy, you know, part of what we need to do is make it more responsive to everyone, not just a small group of interests. But also we need to actually have an economy that's stronger that's more secure, that's more resilient, and resilient for everyone, not just for some, because that's what will enable us to withstand any of these shocks without those crises leading to, you know, potentially devastatingly problematic consequences. Turning back to climate change for a minute, one of the things we often experience in the world of thinking about climate policy is if you talk about resilience, if you talk about thinking about weathering impacts, it detracts from a message about, you know, net zero emissions by 2050, rapid and deep decarbonization. That attention that you perceive also in your writing, or why do you think one may or may not detract from the other? And is now just a time because of the impacts that we're seeing, a time for the resilience message to resonate more with people because they're feeling vulnerable, particularly as they see all of these impacts of climate change around us? 
So I'll be the first to admit, I'm not a climate expert specifically, and I'm not in the day-to-day debates on these issues. So, you know, while I've long been aware of the debate between mitigation and adaptation as a way to think about these problems, as an outsider to the debate, I've always found it somewhat puzzling. And I think even more so now than maybe before for a couple of reasons. The first reason why I've always been sort of puzzled by this divide is While it is true, we absolutely need to do mitigation efforts in order to prevent, you know, the horrifying consequences that may come down the road. It is also the case that the West is burning and has been for a while and that there are major hurricanes hitting places and that people are suffering from consequences that they identify right now and that there are things that we probably need to be doing for our population to make the consequences of those things that are already happening as we speak less severe so that people don't suffer through them. And that these two things, of course, are obviously related. So that's the second kind of puzzle. The extent that we're working more on mitigation, it also helps us work on adaptation because we may need to adapt less if we mitigate more. So I see these as very linked. I think the third puzzle that I've had with it is it seems like in some cases, at least some of the things we might do on adaptation could actually help us in mitigation or mitigation could help us in adaptation. You know, I think about as an example, energy production and clean energy. And, you know, this is a the kind of thing that, you know, when I think about resilience, the possibility of really shifting to 100% clean energy would create lots of jobs, would be extremely important in huge parts of the country that don't really have those jobs because it's going to be, you know, kind of different places might have access to different kinds of clean resources. So it strikes me there's actually really interesting opportunities for people to move, for building more equitable societies, and for building the kind of new energy that will be more resilient in the way that we think about adaptation, but that actually building that will be also good for mitigation in the first place. So I found this a little bit of a puzzling debate, but like I said, I'm not in these for in the day-to-day, so as an outsider, it's been a little striking to me. So going back to your grand strategy, I would surmise from your writing that we are probably not tilted towards being the kind of resilient society that you would recommend we become in your writing. Is that fair to say? I think we could do a lot more to get there. And that's, I think, part of the hope of the article is to push us in that direction. So how do you recommend we get from where we are today to where you'd like to see us be? And I think here, to the extent that you have concrete recommendations about how one might govern, we do have an election coming up, right? The outcome of which could lead to a potential to think about these challenges differently and how we organize our society. What would you concretely recommend we do to try and better prepare to build that kind of resilience? So I think two things. First, at the high level, you know, and this is part of why I wrote the article, thinking about these problems as interconnected and as actually very similar to each other and that the resilience frame and approach gives us purchase on a lot of different things. That I think is a helpful thing to do because it organizes our thinking on where we should be focusing, how to focus and what we should be working on and helps us prioritize. And I think that's a key part of a grand strategy, something that helps us prioritize, especially when we're buffeted by so many different kinds of day-to-day challenges. It gives us a, a North Star that we can point toward. At a more concrete level, you know, one of the proposals I've put forward is that we create a Department of Economic Resilience in the government. And I know there's a lot of skepticism, especially in D.C., about creating bureaucracies or rejiggering org charts and that kind of thing. But, you know, I just like to point out that at this point, 
there's not actually a place in the government if you wanted to create a resilient strategy that would understand, think through, and build a process around what all supply chains need to be secured, how to think about those things, and so on. We don't actually have a single office that does that. We don't have the people who are capable to do that in the numbers that we would need them to actually have them be well-resourced to do it. There are people who do this in the government in different places. Defense Department is probably the best example, but on the scale that if we really were paying attention to climate, pandemics, cyber, competition with China, I mean, all of these kinds of dangers, I don't think we have, are built for that. Uh, and we're certainly not built to do it in an ongoing way. This isn't the kind of thing that you can say, let's create an interagency task force, write a report, and then it's one and done. And the reason why is because if you just take supply chains, for example, this is just extremely detailed, painstaking work. You have to figure out what the item is that you're interested in. You got to look multiple tiers down on the suppliers, figure out how the markets work in each one of those areas, where everything comes from, how many factories there are, where they are, what the challenges they might face are. Uh, that's a lot of work that has to be done by professionals who are really dedicated to doing it. And all of those things are going to change over time as markets change, as conditions change, as technology changes. So it has to be ongoing. So I think we really need an institutional capacity to be able to do this work. And, you know, my proposal for a new agency is not a whole new department. It's actually that we should restructure and rebrand the Department of Commerce. And I think reframing it around economic resilience would give the department a much needed unifying theme, focus and emphasis and I think it should be structured to include a whole bunch of pieces that really it should cover that are not in there. The U.S. Trade Representative sits outside of commerce. The Small Business Administration sits outside of commerce. A lot of the economic security pieces that we work on from sanctions and export controls sit in other places. Trade adjustment assistance is in multiple different places outside of commerce, not just labor. So, you know, linking these things together, putting them in a single place means that we could actually start trying to build a coherent trade, economic security in the international sense, supply chain, and domestic industrial policy that all actually work together. And, you know, right now what we see too often is a trade agreement that liberalizes in one direction that's going to have concentrated impacts in certain geographies, for example. But that doesn't come along with a strategy for how we think about the economic response in those geographies. And in fact, we're not built for that to even think about it that way. So I think we could build something like that and create a kind of State Department style policy planning staff that would do a you know national resilience strategy akin to the national security strategy. And that that kind of package together would really enable us to to move forward in a wide variety of areas and integrate these kind of geoeconomic concerns that we face internationally, a lot of domestic economic concerns, and actually build a coherent path forward. So I want to just put a plug in to support your idea, which is my colleague and I wrote a paper called Race to the Top, which is fundamentally about the idea that the bipartisan thing on climate that we share is this idea of industrial competition with other countries in a race towards clean energy, right? And I think there's a lot of, as you said earlier, there's a lot of growing support for an idea like that. But thinking about how to operationalize something like that at a government-wide level 
is really, really hard. And it is very hard to conceive of doing that kind of strategy well without some sort of structural change to how we think about these things. So I think it's a really important idea that you put on the table. The one other question I had about it, though, is you mentioned geoeconomic competition and geostrategic competition. A lot of times now we're hearing this word resilience as being sort of a code for isolationism or a code for more protection in the U.S. system. Can you talk about how you see a grand strategy of resilience for the U.S. interacting with our allies and our partners around the world or other countries in general? Like, how should we think about our interaction with other groups? And does resilience necessarily have to sort of take you away from being as interconnected? So I think the question has to start with what is your baseline and what do you want? And I think for a lot of people in the last 40 years, especially, the baseline was a feeling that everything should be completely open globally without regard for any consequences. That sounds extreme, but that's effectively what it was. It was a sense that we should be trying to liberalize across the board. Through the Washington consensus, you know, we pushed other countries to liberalize. And That was the push. And the push was we really don't want to be making choices based on, to the extent possible, regime type or political interests or domestic interests. You know, it was comparative advantage was the great theory and implemented through a kind of liberalization strategy. And that's a little overblown, but I don't think it's unfair. I think where we need to be is in thinking that we don't have to choose between a world that is 100% laissez-faire and a world that is 100% self-sufficient and isolationist. This is a false choice. It makes no sense. It's never really been the case in the history of the world that that is how things work. And it won't be the case going forward. The answer is going to be in the middle. Danny Roderick has written a great deal about this over, over many, many years, and I think people have increasingly concluded that he is correct, that we have to be in the middle somewhere. And the question is just where and how are we going to think about that and how are we going to make trade-offs? And so when I think about resilience, I don't think of it as protectionism at all or as 100% self-sufficiency. In some small areas of goods or services, it might be self-sufficiency. In some, it might be that we can have completely integrated, globalized supply chains, goods and services, including with countries that we see ourselves in an adversarial relationship with. And it might be that there's a large middle in which we want to have a degree of interconnection that is significant and deep relationships economically with countries that are core democratic allies. But we want to have a little bit more of an arm's uh, length approach with countries where we're more adversarial. And it's going to depend on the particular good, the particular service, what its impact is on national security or our national interests in these different areas. But I don't think it means we have to go from one extreme to the other. Rather, the the way I would think about it is we need to start thinking about, you know, what are the kinds of things where there are real security concerns where we need to be solely domestic? What are the kinds of things where there are real security concerns, but, you know, it's fine if we're deeply integrated with Canada or Britain or France or Germany. And then there's going to be some areas where we say it actually is completely fine how integrated we are all over the world and there's no big deal at all. But that's the kind of, again, granular analysis that is harder to do if you're kind of a casual armchair analyst because you really need to go through and understand these markets and the supply chains and what the risks are. And that's, uh, you know, as I said, detailed, painstaking work. Um, But as a broad approach, I think we shouldn't be running from one end of the spectrum to the other. 
So, Ganesh, this has been a really fascinating conversation. You've clearly thought a lot about these issues. I mean, one of the tricky things, particularly for me, you know, in this moment in time is a lot of these problems are really big, right? I mean, I deal more on climate change. I don't deal with all of the issues you deal with. But it's really hard for people to think about the breadth of the challenge, the scale of the solutions that are required. You know, as a professor, you deal with people coming from lots of different perspectives. How do you talk to people who aren't sort of where you are about this issue, whether they have sort of deeply held views on their political affiliations or the way they think about the economy, the global economy or trade or those types of things? Like, how do you start to talk with people about the kind of change that you're talking about and the kind of approach that you're advocating for? So one of the really striking things about working on this is that I've found that I've not really gotten pushback on the broader goals, aims, or approach. The concern and where there's disagreement is on the how to implement. And I think the biggest concern that most people have is, well, there's really two. First is a general worry about creating government bureaucracies or the even ability to make change in that way and wondering if it's worth it to try to even do something along those lines versus the more one-off kind of task force approach. And then the second big pushback is on whether it is politically feasible to actually make change at that level of scale, you know, of a kind of government reorganization in this direction, especially at a time of crisis. And, you know, one of the things that I talked about in, in different writings on this is that what's really striking to me is throughout our history, the times when we've actually done these big reorganizations have actually been in the crisis moments. It's not actually been when things are okay that we make big changes. It's when things are at their worst or in the middle of the crisis or immediately thereafter that we engage in these big changes. And, you know, you go back to the Civil War. It's in the middle of the Civil War that Lincoln completely redoes the banking system with the National Bank Act in 1863. It's the middle of the Depression where we create a whole bunch of different agencies. I mean, the alphabet soup of agencies is a New Deal creation in the midst of crisis. The kind of building of our national security state happens during World War II, you know, and, and we see big things come after crises, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau after the financial crash, DHS after 9-11, the EPA after a series of, of environmental failings. So I think in large part, what's really striking is that the politics, I think, are actually the opposite of often what we think they are, which is that in the moment where a lot of these things are urgent, people in the country understand that we actually should be taking action and that we need to take action swiftly and urgently. And so it's not actually a political cost for people to push for bigger changes. It's actually a political benefit for people to push for bigger changes because they're the ones leading the way to actually build that future. And I think for foreign policy people, especially, or people who are interested in foreign policy, you know, one of the things that I like to stress is that we often think back to the generation right after World War II, you know, it was Dean Acheson, the present at the creation kind of moment. But what's really striking about that is that they thought they could be the ones who were doing the creating. And there's no reason why we can't be the creators also in our own time with our own problems. So I think if we really want to take a lesson from the people who started the so-called liberal international order. It shouldn't be the substantive lesson of exactly what it was, though that's an important lesson too. It should actually be the lesson that they 
thought they could actually make change and do big things that were commensurate with the challenges they faced, rather than that they were uh, powerless to do things that could actually rise to the moment. That's excellent. Well, if we need a series of crises to be able to make big change, I think 2020 is uh, delivering. Another it definitely is delivering on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, listen, Ganesh, this has been a great conversation. We always end by just asking your advice on, you know, people who find this conversation interesting, who want to learn more about your work or some of the work that inspires you to write and think about resilience. You know, where can they go for more information that you would recommend? And here I will not ask you to do the shameless plug uh, for your book. I will cue you to plug your book <laughs> if you weren't going to do it anyway. Thanks. Yeah. So in terms of my own work on this, I'd recommend my new book called The Great Democracy, How to Fix Our Politics, Unrig the Economy, and Unite America. It's, uh, it's a great book. Um, you don't have to take my word for it. You can read reviews in The New York Times or Washington Post. But it really covers a lot of you know, what we've talked about in terms of democracy and this moment being a moment of potentially generational transition and the creation of a new paradigm that might be with us for 30 years and and why I think that's possible in this moment and what I think that paradigm should look like. In terms of something more broad that's different and might not be something that your listeners have read or heard much about, there's a series of books by a guy named Paul Koistinen, and he calls it the history of the American warfare state, but it's basically a history of the American economic state at home related to national defense and warfare. And, you know, it really starts from the beginning of the country and goes all the way effectively to current times. But I'd particularly point people to the two volumes, it's a multi-volume set, but to the volume on the 1930s and then the volume on World War II. And the reason why I point to those two volumes is that they go in extraordinary detail. I mean, he's, he's done an enormous amount of work to describe how the government was structured and operated in a very granular way to do mobilization along certain resources and preparedness, supply chains, industrial policy, coordination, all of that in the lead up to World War II and during World War II itself. And the book, those two books, really show very well what it will take to think more seriously and act more seriously about a lot of these topics. And they raise a lot of the challenges that people who were working on these things faced in real time. And so if we want to have a sense of what challenges people are going to face as we think more seriously about economic competition, production at home, industrial policy, geoeconomics, and so on, you know, we have historical experience with this. And the 30s and 40s are a great resource in terms of a lot of very smart people spending a lot of time and urgency focused on these questions. I think there's a lot we can learn from that. That's great. Well, those are wonderful recommendations. Ganesh, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on Theories of Change. And I recommend everybody take a look at A Grand Strategy for Resilience and Foreign Affairs that talks a little bit more about what we've discussed today. But thanks very much for taking the time to join us. Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. 